Welcome to Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Hi, hi, hi. Welcome back to Employee of the Month. On this episode, I spoke with Bob Harris, who is fantastic because he has lived not just a dream, but several dreams. He's like that cat with nine lives. And then somehow also had the courage and frankly, uh, just like integrity, sheer integrity to help others live their dreams. It was such an exciting opportunity to talk with someone who's been a Jeopardy game show champion and also written for television, which I've had so much trouble to break into, and yet he's done it and is honest about the excitement about it and all honesty about the uh, difficulty. I'm very excited to be welcoming Bob Harris to Employee of the Month. Um, congratulations on winning the Employee of the Month Award. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm highly honored. I will covet the trophy. I don't know if I can carry it. It's very large. <laughs> it's not quite as exciting as being a 13-time Jeopardy! champion. I've only been on the show 13 times. I've I lost five of those. So I've actually heard, ooh, sorry, as much as as often as any living human ever has or ever should. But to most of us, just being on the show, I can't use the word just in being on Jeopardy! It's the only game show that you actually have to be qualified to um, go on. Well, I, you know, a Wheel of Fortune... In terms of intelligence. In Wheel that. of Fortune does require large motor skills and, you know... <laughs> Not um, fine motor skills, just large motor skills. Well, you have to be able to spin a thing and, and flap your hands to front paws go together and, and, you know... There's a whole thing where Jeopardy contestants tend to be a little snide toward Wheel, but... Um, snide towards Wheel? A little like bit, yeah. Jargon. Yeah, there's kind of a little... Yeah, but it's, it's produced by the exact same people in, like, the, the studio is the same place over, so... Um, and they're all really, really, really great, nice people. And and just because you're on Wheel of Fortune doesn't mean you couldn't be great at Jeopardy. It just means you got on Wheel of Fortune. Uh, actually, there was a woman. That's actually other... a complete not non-true story. But I, I do know <laughs> <laughs> I do know people who, as their source of income, I've actually now met several comedians who go on game shows mm-hmm. as a way to win things. And I know Kathy Ladman and, mm-hmm. and Margot Lightman. They've won cars mm-hmm. off being on game shows and. Mm-hmm. Um, one person mentioned to me that you have to seem sane enough that they want you to be on there, mm-hmm. but you also have to be crazy enough to look like you're really enthusiastic. Oh, that's actually one of the things I liked about Jeopardy is that they don't actually, you know, they don't need you to jump up and down at the sight of, you know, a, a, a washer and dryer as if it is like the fulfillment of your life's dream, <laughs> you know. What what do they require? Because I have another friend who was on Jeopardy, a bunch, Boomi um, Agliati, mm-hmm. and he studied for it. Mm-hmm. As did I. I wrote a whole book about studying for it, actually. Um, I, I want to make sure that I get this... Plug, plug, here it comes, here it comes. <laughs> ...prisoner of Trebekistan, and I yeah. I know that Trebek is referring to Alex Trebek. Okay. Is he really actually bright? No. Oh, he's great. He's no, great. Is he bright? Yes, extremely, extremely. Um, I, I really like and respect the like, guy very much. Win? Could he win the show? Easy, yeah. Now, he's very modest, and he would tell... He gets asked this all the time by the studio audience. And I'm at tapings all the time because people have read the book and then they invite me to come to the taping and stuff like that. So actually, I see the people at Jeopardy um, just, you know, from going to the the once a year or something for somebody's taping. I've actually seen them more in the last 15 years than I have my own family in Ohio. How many people Uh, uh, who have been on Jeopardy are members of Mensa? Actually, they don't don't recruit at Mensa. Um, they're, They're not interested in that because the ability to play Jeopardy actually isn't necessarily about, you know, intelligence or book smarts or something like that. 
it has more to do with a kind of, uh, one, you have to be really curious. You have to be the kind of person who wants to read everything. And so you get a very broad level of knowledge. It may be very thin, but you get a very broad level of exposure to stuff. And then the other thing is you have to be playful. You have to be willing to work with the wordplay. You've got to be willing to, I mean, one category in almost every round is like, you know, punning and before and after and, and just wordplay. Um, so it, it takes a kind of, you know, goofiness to, to, to succeed on Jeopardy. Uh, most of the people who do really well may not be, they, they probably weren't their valedictorians. They were probably more the most popular kid in school. Is um, that right? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of people. So now who you're telling me that if, if if I didn't already feel inadequate for not being the most popular person, <laughs> I should also feel inadequate for not being the most yeah. intelligent. I am here to be your living nightmare. <laughs> I'm just here to bring insecurity. That's, that's just all I'm here well, for. Well, it is fascinating because I, I wasn't kidding. Where I've I've met more people who are oh, not more people. I've met mm -hmm. enough people who are likely to use going on game shows as mm -hmm. a viable way to either make a living or at least buy expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, things that you need, but Jeopardy is the only one that doesn't fit into that category. Mm -hmm. You actually have to have a, a certain mm -hmm. sense of knowledge, and what you're saying is you have to have a broad yeah. sense of knowledge that ranges from pop culture to more arcane, yeah. antiquated yeah. things, and be a good test taker. Too. Yeah, yeah, and you've got to be. Um, it's also very much a game of self knowledge, not so much knowledge as self knowledge. What um, is self knowledge in this situation? It doesn't sound like self awareness you necessarily have, is what's important. Here. Yeah, you have like six seconds to determine whether or not do you know this? Do you really know this? You're not guessing now. You you really know the answer because the way you lose Jeopardy is by guessing. I play the game well and I've won a bunch of games not because I know the most or I'm the most playful or charming or certainly not the thinnest, but because I'm actually really good at not playing the game. I'm really good at the modest act of putting the buzzer down and letting someone else get those points. And you have to be willing to do that and just say, I'm not going to get any on this. I don't know this one. I don't know this one. Oh, I know this one. And then you can buzz in. And then you're never going to take points away from yourself. And the way people lose on the show is they get, you know, they got 10 right and they got five wrong and they lose to the guy who got six of them right. So they get yeah. trigger happy. Now, what about, are there people who win all the time at home and think, oh, I'd be really good at mm -hmm. that? But actually, they wouldn't be good because on television, they might mm. freeze up. Well, they might freeze up or they might, at home, you never get penalized for your wrong guesses. So, if some, oh, that's the one I would have said. Well, on Jeopardy, you just lost $2,000. So, uh, it's really about, it, 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 there, there was one game that um, I played in, they had the, this thing called the Ultimate Tournament of Champions in 2005, where they invited... Everyone like, to play against Ken Jennings. Yeah, yeah. Ken was the Ken was the uh, in the in the circus of Jeopardy. Ken was the elephant at the end. Can you explain to to people who aren't uh, avid Jeopardy fans who Ken Jennings is? What do you mean? There are people who don't watch Jeopardy. <laughs> who, who 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 are your listeners? There are only who are three, these people? I mean, only the three listeners who don't <laughs> regularly watch Jeopardy because it's impossible to DVR it. It's not on in demand or on Hulu. Oh really? Oh that's that's right. That's tragic. Well, they should fix that. Um, Ken Jennings is. Uh, he won 74 games in a row. Now, part of the reason for that is because they changed the rules the year he came on the show. When I was on in 1997, they retired you after five games. You were just, you know, the men came and pulled you off of the stage. Now, wait a minute. So you couldn't win more than that. Right. They had a cap. Right. It was five and you were gone. And because um, they, they had made a decision early on in the show that they didn't want somebody to be a longtime champ. Um, partly because the more you've played, the better you get at it, the more confident you are, the more intimidating you are to the other players. I mean, come on, you go to Jeopardy. It's, it's like insurance companies. They don't want to keep insuring mm -hmm. someone 
who's going to mm-hmm. keep having accidents that are not mm-hmm. their fault. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, if you're if you're Jeopardy's producers, <laughs> your worst nightmare would be to have a guy come on the show who is like really good at the game and it's, let's say there's no cap and he's like just like really obnoxious or she's just unwatchable or, or whoever it is that comes on. I love that he might be obnoxious and she might just be unwatchable. Would you prefer he's unwatchable, she's obnoxious? I think it's equally the why why isn't obnoxious unwatchable? Couldn't that, couldn't we yeah. live in a culture where that was true? I think we I think well, well clearly not. There are these things called Kardashians. Yes, that's um, true. Uh, obnoxious and watchable, you know, the, the Venn <laughs> no, diagram. No, I know. I said, couldn't we live in? A yeah, place? it would be nice. It would. You, man, you and me both, man. But wait, that seems unfair that Ken Jennings got, got that. Yeah, he. Well, they changed the rules. They wanted. They. They thought uh, there was this vogue in the, the about ten years ago where all of a sudden there were all these really big money game shows. There were you know Millionaire and Greed was on Fox, and they were giving away a million dollars a night on different networks, and Jeopardy needed to somehow kind of flash things up and, and be able to compete with that. And they can't raise the prize money enormously. They're on five nights a week. What is the prize money? You know, most, most games somebody, you know, you play a really good game, uh, you, you, you get Final Jeopardy correct at the end, maybe you walk home with 35 grand, something like that, which is a nice paycheck. How much did you make? Uh, in 1997 dollars. I was retired uh, with 58 grand after five games, but they've also doubled the money since, so that would be 116 in modern modern dollars. Did you get residuals? Uh, no, no, no. They, you don't get residuals. I did get, they, they gave me two Camaros as my parting gift. Are you serious? Dead serious. Where are they now? Um, uh, some, well, they're Camaros, so they're, they're you know, they're rotting in a, some trash heap somewhere. <laughs> the, the Camaros are not built to last, you know. It's a high school football quarterback's car. I do always think whenever I see the prizes, like the furniture and things like mm-hmm. that, that they're, that they're just made out of, I don't know, paper, <laughs> or construction paper. Like, it never feels real to me. Like, I always thought, like, the cars, like, there's nothing in the inside. Oh, yeah, when they have, well, you know. <laughs> they display it, like, on the prices, right? Yeah. You want a new car! <laughs> well, actually, that's pretty much true. They, they, I mean, the car is real, but they're, they, you know, they always say, suggested retail price, as packaged. Mm-hmm. And the package, like, they barely include a damn radio, you know, or whatever. Like, you know, you got four tires, you got our premium package the game show prize version of a lot of cars is like the one that if you went to the, the dealer and got no options at all so like um, no engine yeah yeah basically yeah yeah it's it's the wind-up car with the big rubber band underneath but fifty-eight thousand dollars for how many days of work you said five 13 days total of work no no 58 was when i first started um and then they've had me back for subsequent tournaments and i would have to sit here and do a bunch of math it's probably I don't know. Some, it's somewhere, depending on how you value the Camaros, which I think was forty some odd. It's one hundred fifty to two hundred thousand. I don't really know. It's somewhere in there. And then, do you get paid for the appearances? No, no. There's no appearance fee or anything like that. That um, sucks. Because, like, what if you went on? Like, <laughs> if I could just qualify and just get in there th- right. and then lose, at least right. I'd make money for that day. They do have that. They have. If you come in third place in an ordinary game, you you. I think the third place prize is now a thousand dollars, and I think you get a bucket of a leave. Seriously. Or whatever, there's some sponsor, and I think second place is two thousand. And then when they have the big tournaments, uh, like if you lose in the first round, you get ten grand or something like that. And they're big invitational tournaments now. How do you feel but, about Celebrity Jeopardy? You know, I I, I think. Did you see the Wolf Blitzer episode? Uh, yes, I did. The, the, the one where he got his butt handed to him by, I think it was Andy Kindler. Andy the, Richter. Andy Richter. Andy, Andy Richter, Richter. That's right. Who most people will know as Conan's sidekick. Yeah. So you're going to assume that this person can't be very bright yeah. if they just sort of sit there as this yeah. silent Andy's, sidekick. Andy's really bright. 
Andy got every single question correct. He's really bright. Dana Delaney, who went to Wesleyan with me, I was a little disappointed that she didn't do better, but Wolf Blitzer should have been fired. He should have been removed from television for good after that appearance. There were questions, and, and you knew that it wasn't that he got a buzz because there were some clues that no one answered, and they were very easy clues that anyone who would pretend to be a news anchor should have got. I yeah. couldn't believe that Wolf Blitzer didn't know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem when he makes over $5 million a year, probably. Well, to talk about the Middle East. Wasn't on the cue cards. It was like watching broadcast news or network. The thing is, though, I mean, I would I would find Wolf Blitzer more plausible if he was like a gorgeous, gorgeous hunk of man or yes, something so like that. Yes, so it was equally confusing, right? So, Why is this person who's not attractive? Yeah, how does Wolf Blitzer exist? I don't understand. And is an idiot, makes so yeah. much money. So answer that question for me. The, as a Jeopardy champion, what is the answer to that question? My theory is that he is Can one of the only people... What is Wolf Blitzer is capable of emphasizing every single word that comes out of his mouth in a sentence? I mean, if you watch the show, you're in the Situation Room. I'm Wolf Blitzer at CNN. Dude, stop screaming at me. What's the headline? This headline is... And it doesn't matter what it is. It'll be bus crash and every single word. I think he has something like... I think it's a form of Tourette's that requires you to scream every single word. He just doesn't have one he focuses on. But it wouldn't surprise me if Wolf Blitzer suddenly, you know, in Iraq today, monkey, 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 in Iraq today, you know, if he just went that way. Did you aspire to be a Jeopardy champion? How did you break into that line of work? I needed the money. Um, like you're talking about comics and people. I was a comic for a while. Okay, so when did you move to LA? Because I want to go in order. Mm-hmm. I'm a little confused. Cause you've had so, <laughs> no, you've had so many dream jobs. Uh, yeah. And they're all quite different <laughs> from each other, and they're all very competitive. I've been very lucky. So, so what? start from the beginning. I know mm-hmm. that you, you grew up. Uh, in Ohio, cabin. your well, parents were from Appalachia. My my grandparents, yeah, both of my parents are from Appalachia. My grandfather Appalachia. was a cult. Uh, Appalachia. I apologize. Yeah, that's all right. Appalachia, um, as the British would say. It's uh, yeah. My grandfather was a coal miner. Um, I mean, I'm I could go full Loretta Lynn on you if you wanted. I can actually play the banjo. Oh wow! I actually can. Yeah, I am white trash. I really am. And your father got out, became mm-hmm. a factory worker mm-hmm. instead of being in a coal mine. Mm-hmm. And your mother worked in a dime store. Mm-hmm. And how did you go from what sounds like very simple means mm-hmm. to living class. at Horatio Alger story? You know, um, I was lucky enough that I got. I was I was precocious. I was I was a, you know, I, I don't. I was a pretty bright kid, and and there, I had a first grade teacher who saw promise in me and yanked me out of the public schools and got me a scholarship at the most prestigious uh, prep school in Ohio, what was that uh, called? University School in uh, Hunting Valley. Where, you know, I had access to a, a pretty good education that gave me a scholarship. Did it feel and, awkward to be around kids who I'm assuming were well off? Yeah. I mean, you know, the other kids are all, they just came back from, you know, sunning in Maui. And, you know, they, I mean, this is really actually true. I'm not saying this is a joke. In math class, um, there was one year where um, I would pass in the hall on the way to math class. I would go past the son of the guy who owned the Cleveland Browns. My father couldn't afford tickets. You know, it was a, it was a very, it was a huge ongoing object lesson in sort of the class structure of American society. And the other kids are all wearing their designer clothes, and I'm going to school in fifth grade wearing Garanimals. You know, so... Garanimals. Oh, <laughs> were these... That doesn't speak to my class background. That may also speak to age background. Yeah, like, well, I'm 70, so that's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the Depression, I'm of course. I'm 16. Yeah, but I, I, I got to say, you, you don't look a day over 15. Thank um, you. Sure, sure. It's I know braces. how to kiss up. It's the braces. Ah, then you know what? I, you, you know, you're going to sparkle when those come off. You really are. Yeah. You really are, yeah. So um, I learned a little bit that money doesn't necessarily make you a good person or moral. Um, I mean... 
Or intelligent. Yeah. Have yeah. you seen the movie Rocky where uh, he's punching the bag, the, the big uh, sides of beef, you know, to work out? The other kids were Rocky. I was the beef, you know. And so I had a, you know, I learned a little bit about the oppression and so on. But just to, I mean, just, I mean, I'm not comparing my experience with, you know, nobody turned fire hoses on with me or anything. Yeah. 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 But I always, I've always had sort of an empathy for the, uh, the underdog and, uh, you know, I think as a result. And if you look at any of my writing at any point, That's, it's I mean, all the underdog. So what happened after school? Uh, got a degree in electrical engineering and applied physics, Case, Case Western. Western Reserve. Do you feel like going to this private school enabled you to be able to go to Case Western? Maybe. Um, probably. I, I mean, I, I, there were some, my parents would never have been able to afford it. I got some scholarships, so yeah. And uh, I got a degree in, in engineering and physics that I, I used for four months when I got out. I really, really, really didn't want to live the Dilbert life. And, you know, I just felt like, like my soul was dying every time I was going into work. Um, well, the know. other interesting part is you've only been working for four months. Uh-huh. And so there's also this adjustment from being a free student where you get mm-hmm. to just lap up knowledge. And for someone like yourself who, who just loves learning so much, mm-hmm. yeah. an adjustment in and of itself, I don't care whether you're writing for, you know, The Wire, mm-hmm. you still would have had an adjustment to being mm-hmm. in an office and having mm-hmm. a boss. And I was in a situation where it was the job that I had was they'd hired 10 employees to fill six positions to go overseas to go to work in Saudi Arabia for the Saudi Arabian Army Signal Corps. This was your um, first job? This was my first job out of college, yeah. And it was for very good money. Take and back everything I said before. That's bananas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it was also very competitive because there were only six. Six of us were going to get the, to win the big prize and go to Saudi Arabia. How much was the money? Um, well, it was 1984, so I'm dating myself here a little bit. So you have to adjust it. You probably double yeah, it for modern. But, so. I'm 20 years old and it's 40, 40 grand a year, which was wow. going to be tax-free if I get to Saudi Arabia. I'm out of the country. They're not going to charge me income tax, and Saudi has no taxes. So, And they're going to pay all my living expenses. I was going to live in a compound that was owned by the company, and there was free travel involved. And it was winning the grand prize. It was an amazing job. And so the 10 of us competed for those six slots so fiercely. And the competition was based not on our ability to work as a unit or our ability to work with Saudis or our ability to master Arabic or anything like that. We were being judged in this very survivor-like, which six will get along best if we put them in the desert? So it was very much about who was going to get voted off the island. And of of the 10 of us, I was the youngest. I mean, I just didn't fit in. I was the first one voted off the island. Partly because I got along really well with the Saudis. We got on great. I started learning a little bit of Arabic, none of which I remember. What were you meant to be doing there? Um, we were going to go to Saudi Arabia and teach the members of the Signal Corps how to use the, uh, the avionics equipment, the, uh, uh, the electronics that the company was selling. And that was really simple. I mean, it was really simple stuff. It was consumer training. It was literally, here's the on switch, here's the off switch. The daily job would have been no more difficult than working in a radio shack. And for that, I was going to be paid exorbitant amounts of money with free travel and all this other stuff. But so you got fired four months in. I quit. You quit. I, yeah, yeah, I just bailed. Oh, but um, I thought you said you got voted off the island. Yeah, I did. Well, but I mean, you socially, off. socially within the group of, of the ten of us, it was clear I was not going to be in the six that went, which meant that I was going to. Okay, so now I've got this job in Rochester, New York. Rochester was where the company was. Okay. Okay, so instead of this exotic international man of mystery life that I thought I signed up for. Uh, God, I'm going to be working a Dilbert desk job in Rochester. You know what? I'll do something else. I'll go live in the YMCA if I have to. And, and that's, that's what you did. That's what I did. How did you pick the YMCA you landed? Um, so the one that was fun to stay in. Um, I, 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 w- I moved to Chicago and uh, was going to take classes at Second City. And, and was uh, Second City already huge at that time? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. SCTV had been on and, you know, a lot of the cast of Saturday Night Live was coming in from, from, S- from Second City. 
and they were doing great work on stage. I mean, the, I was just blown away by the talent of the troupe that was there at the time. So but it uh, couldn't have been that big if you were able to study with Del Close right away. He and was I, for people who don't know, Del Close is sort of the guru, I would say, yeah. of improv comedy, and everyone you know today, meaning uh, Steve Carell to Stephen yeah. Colbert to Amy Sedaris, yeah. uh, all studied with Del yeah. or studied with someone under him if they're younger, yeah. like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. I mean, just generations. Anyone who's laughed in the United States for the last fifty years owes Del a thank you, and, and it's really true. Bill Murray, his generation, and, and the original cast of Saturday Night Live. And if you go back before then, I mean, uh, Nichols and May on Broadway, I mean, you know, Dell worked with them at the Compass Players. And you, you go back, Dell is like not very well known, but if in the family tree of American comedy, he's very close to the roots. Now, he's someone you've also talked about a lot in your books as mm-hmm. someone who you, you both admired mm-hmm. tremendously. Mm-hmm. Um, and also learned a great deal from in terms mm-hmm. of the life lesson of yes and, which mm-hmm. is sort of the elementary level of improv. The first mm-hmm. thing to learn is that one says yes and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's the it is the very first lesson you learn and the most important. And Dell was a, more than just teaching that as a performance technique. He sort of lived it in a way. I mean, mind you, I'm like 22 by this point, and I meet this guy who's uh, like you know 50 or something at that time, who had. You know, he'd been a fire eater in the circus, and he'd done comic books and acted in movies, and he'd done light shows with the Grateful Dead. And, I mean, he was just like the coolest person I'd ever met. I'm from this town in Ohio, you know, and here's this guy who's done things I didn't even know. I couldn't even imagine were jobs, you know, and then he'd done them. The thing that's hard for me to always come to terms with is that I find improv, coming from stand-up as my background Mm -hmm. and my entree, Mm -hmm. uh, improv seems so much more collaborative. It is Mm -hmm. essentially you're on stage, you need to support each other in order for it to thrive, and Mm -hmm. the people who come out of it are so steeped in that, yet at the same time, I've met a lot of improv comedians who are incredibly successful who are not the nicest people in the world, who can be very Mm self-absorbed and um, very ambitious. And I don't know if that has to do with... And I don't mean ambitious um, Mm -hmm. in a negative way necessarily all the time, but it certainly isn't... um, the same principles that foster collaboration mm-hmm. aren't, or the same characteristics mm-hmm. that foster collaboration aren't the same characteristics that are, are going to mm-hmm. uh, make someone ambitious and successful mm-hmm. in a capitalist society and in Hollywood, which is yeah. very competitive. Well, yeah, I mean, almost nobody, whether it's stand up or improv or just acting or whatever, pretty much nobody gets headshots made because everything went right in junior high. You know, I mean, that's just, it's kind of by definition. And it doesn't really matter, I think, which uh, discipline you're dealing with. I find both communities actually really, really uh, much more supportive than I think uh, the general public would think. Oh no! I, I think the general public thinks they're more supportive than really? they are. Really? Really? Yeah. Huh? We must know different parts of the general public. I think my version of the general public is less supportive than yours. I think that might be it. I also think that um, I've met stand-up comedians who are nicer than anyone I ever worked mm-hmm. with in foster care. Mm-hmm. I've met improv <laughs> comedians who are just salt of the earth mm-hmm. um, but I do think it is an individual basis yeah. oh yeah, yeah. Um, I've met some of the loveliest human beings yeah. I've ever met in comedy and I'm so proud to be part mm-hmm. of that world and I will always feel connected to it mm-hmm. but it is something that I, I do I struggle with understanding where collaboration and empathy begin and end and mm-hmm. isn't necessarily connected mm-hmm. well it's certainly possible to agree and amplify uh, you know with a suggestion on stage without necessarily having any emotional empathy with the person that you're, 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 you're dealing with. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to, well, you know, here we are at a bullfight and then just, you know, start dealing with that than it is to get off the stage and you're in the relationship with the person and you're not in, a, you're not in an imaginary bullfight, you're in an actual fight. That's a completely different set of rules. And, um, and the other thing is on stage, since you're def- you are 
forced to agree on stage. That is your job. You have to agree with what happens. So yes, you can collaborate. Off stage, you know, no director is going to get upset if you don't agree and amplify and everything. And so, you know, just the same way that plumbers don't go home and plumb, you know, improv people get off the stage and, and it's, you know, it's a different set of rules. And I love doing improv. I love performing it. Um, uh, I, I loved working with people and doing all of that. But by now it's the mid-80s and we're moving very slowly through my timeline. Uh, we'll hit the fast forward button here in a second here because there was, the, you know, the years of you know, spiraling downward that we can skip over. The, Were the, there years of spiraling downward? Nah, I'm just, I've had, I've had an amazing, I've had a joyride. I've had a, an amazing life. I, I mean, I don't mean, I'm, don't, I'm grateful. I'm lucky. I'm fortunate. So I'm you're in Chicago studying with Del Close. Yeah. What are you doing as your day job then? Telemarketing. Um, you know, anything I could find. Um, that does not sound amazing to me. It was, um, it was actually really fun because I was doing a Canadian accent for Time Life Books in Chicago because they were mostly, uh, you know... And, and by the way, this is a really lame Canadian accent, but, uh, you know, Mr. McKenzie, yeah, this is Bob calling from uh, Time Life in, uh, in Toronto. And then one night I got busted. Uh, this woman says, oh, you're not from Toronto. I said, no. And she said, no, you're from Vancouver. I can tell from the accent. Is that when you were doing TV and radio personality stuff? Oh, oh, when I was hosting things? And I went through, that. that's just come in fits and spurts. Um, somebody will call me up and say, hey, do you want to do this thing? And I'll, okay. I'll do it. I've never, like, gone out to market myself as a TV presenter. Um, okay. Uh, that's, but it says on your bio, TV and radio mm-hmm. personality. Yeah. What is that? Well, I, would, I had to? a syndicated radio thing for a while. For about five years, I when was on. When was that? That was 1997 through, 90, through 2002. Um, I was on KNX here in Los Angeles and of uh, 75 stations and then rebroadcast four times a day on Armed Forces Radio in 140 countries. Um, and I got wow. to just, yeah, it was awesome. It was your own radio show. Yeah, well, it was a one-minute commentary, so I didn't have to work very hard. I just had to have come up with something to say for one minute a day. And How did you get that? This is where I'm telling you that I'm lucky. I made one tape. I had no radio experience. I made one cassette tape. And I sent it to one radio station program director. And I didn't know anybody there. Nobody introduced me. I sent it to Bob Sims at KNX Radio here in Los Angeles. He actually took it out of the envelope, listened to it, and I was on the air the next week. How many minutes was that tape? It was like three minutes long. So, and okay, if three minutes got you one minute of airtime, do you ever mm-hmm. think about doing that? Because <laughs> it's directly proportional. <laughs> if I'd, ah, I should have sent a nine-hour tape. If I'd sent a nine-hour tape, I would, oh, I would have my own network by now. Oh. So you came out to L.A. Mm-hmm. from Chicago. Mm-hmm. You knew you wanted to be a TV writer? No, not yet. Okay. I, that was another just sort of, well, see, Dell taught yes and, and so I've done that in life. Somebody says, you want to do this? I never say no. If it's a job offer or whatever, if I have no idea how to do it, it does. It, that, then it's even more interesting. So, who told you to come out to LA, and who told you to come right for CSI? Uh, well, it was actually the weather in the Midwest that told me to come out to LA. Okay. It was April thirtieth of nineteen ninety-six. It was forty degrees and just pouring rain, and I realized that September was four months away, and I, I'm done. And on June tenth of nineteen ninety-six, I got into my Mitsubishi car and I drove to Los Angeles, arriving on June seventeenth. I remember it quite vividly. And that was sort of uh, uh, when I when I came out here with not the slightest idea of what I was going to do, and I got into TV writing, which I you know have never, I've I've done some. I'm not like some big TV writer or whatever. I've I've uh, I've done some. Uh, I was dating Jane Espenson, who's the uh, uh, co-executive producer of Buffy the Vampire Slayer at the time, and. You know, I guess I'm sort of like Play-Doh. I just, you know, kind of rubbed off. I was like, well, that, that looks like fun to try. And I wrote a couple of... You mean of sp- like Play-Doh as opposed to Plato? Right, right. Now, I'm very much unlike Plato. Yeah. Um, uh, I just wanted um, to clarify. I was like, yeah. 
Oh, that guy got around. That guy was a major horn dog, Plato. I mean, that was, you know, that's what his, that's, that's what the whole Lyceum was about, really, was just meeting people. It was, you know, they didn't have Match.com back then. And Grinder, forget it. They didn't have it. You know, um, they had Philosopher. There was no E before the R. So you were you know. dating Jane. Yeah. And I, uh, uh, and, you know, got on great. And, and she was working at Buffy. And I kind of thought, oh, well, fade in. And I gave it a shot. And I, I swear, again, luckiest guy in the world. I wrote two spec scripts ever in my life. And one of them got in the hands of... Uh, one of the executive producers at CSI, which at that time was becoming the biggest show in the world. What was your spec script of? A spec script is a script about a show that's currently on the air. Yeah. Um, I wrote a spec West Wing, and okay. um, which could not be less like CSI. I mean, spec West Wing is just people walking around in circles and talking at each other using big words and sounding all of them exactly like Aaron Sorkin. And CSI is, you know, let's explore the wound, and the camera shoots in, and it's this grand wing. Yeah, it's a very structured script in terms of, like, we have to have an action happen here, we have to have this happen here, and it's going to be the same rhythm in each episode. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, police tape, gurney, bad pun, you know, the who starts howling. I mean, the show has a certain rhythm to it. Um, But I wound up on CSI. I worked there for the third season, and um, later, you know, I worked, uh, um, I did a... Uh, I did one episode of Bones. I've done a lot of things nobody's ever heard of. My favorite gig was in, I got hired, again, yes and, being the dominant rule in my life. Televisa in Mexico uh, was looking to hire some American to come down and teach how to westernize the stories. So I, I took a job in Mexico City for Televisa working on El Pantera, the panther. El Pantera. El Pantera. So Rather just to than, clarify, they had a white yeah. male. Yeah. Writing this novella. Yeah, there telenovela. Were no writers. They had some writers, but um, no women they, available. Right. No, no, there was a woman on stage. There was an Argentine woman that they'd brought up. Okay. Um, they wanted to diversify. Glad they brought one in. Yeah, they did. She was great, actually. Uh, she was really, really good. They should have more. Yes. And see, <laughs> see. Claro que sí. See. Um, it, it was a fantastic experience. I mean, how it was much a, you get paid to write a novella? Virtually nothing. They owed me. See, how much did they owe me? How much did they contractually owe me? And how much did they actually pay me? Are two different questions. Yes. Oh, good to know. Yeah. So they don't always pay what they say they're going to pay. In that particular case, they actually gave me two different contracts. One of which was in English. One of which was in Spanish. And they assumed Stop that the it. gringo didn't speak enough Spanish to read the Spanish contract, which said that the English contract was didn't actually mean anything. It had correct. That the gringo couldn't read Spanish. Yeah. No. Pero no. Pero no. And now I look in the middle distance, and the soundtrack comes up really loudly. No, I made a big fuss. I got on a plane and said, look, I'd love to keep working for you, but you are not paying me. I have to go home. And if you don't pay me, I will make a lot more noise. And they eventually paid me. Um, except they had, the, the, the check I got was one penny less than they actually owed me. What, was, they, what did they, they owe you? I think... This is a show about jobs. It's been a while. Yeah, away. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's okay. Um, I... It was, I, I, honestly, I have to tell you, I don't remember exactly. It was something like 35 grand or 20 grand or 30, one, 30 grand. For one episode. No, I worked there for, um, it, was, it was a couple of months worth of work, uh, if you all told. And what about CSI? Like, how much do you get for an, writing for an episode? Oh, you can look that up on the Writers Guild. Go to WGA.org and look. Anyone can go to WGA.org and look for the schedule so of minimums. how much does one make for an episode of writing for a drama? If you're doing an hour-long thing, if you're on staff, you're yeah. making, I don't know what it currently is, but it's something in the, it's over 100 a year just to be on staff. And then once you move up to the story editor level, and, and by the way, you, you're advanced contractually. I think it's still like this. You know how, like, in Cub Scouts, 
I don't know what it is in Girl Scouts, but in Cub Scouts, when I was eight years old, I was automatically a Wolf Scout. The next year, when I was nine, I was automatically a Bear Scout. And when I was 10 years old, I could not avoid being a below. It was just hardwired into the contract. It's sort of the same thing with staff writer, story editor, executive story editor, and so on. It's, you know, the, the steps are, are, are in, in, in place for you. And once you get, at least last I checked, once you got to the story editor level, um, you would get your pay, but you'd also start getting episode payments for the stuff you wrote, and the, then character payments if you invented a character who showed up in later things, and so on. Um, so, I mean, you're starting in the, in the low six figures, and then it goes on up. And by the time you've been on the show for a few years, you're making mid-six figures. How long did you stay there? Not long enough. Not long enough. Why I don't, not? I only lasted one year. Okay, because you keep saying yes and, but there is mm-hmm. a point where you sort of leave something once you get bored with it. Yeah, I'm not really, yeah. And strangely enough, I'm single. So, uh, uh, <laughs> so um, yeah. You know, this is turning into a psychological <laughs> session, after all. Yeah, the, uh, uh, I only lasted one year at CSI, not even. The main reason, well, there were two reasons. One, I was a, I really hadn't worked in offices a lot, and I wasn't very good at group dynamics, and TV writing is about sitting together in a group, and I, had, I didn't have enough life experience in that, and that's just a fact. The other reason is that I was having a moral thing with it. I didn't realize, and this is my own stupidity, okay, don't take this wrong. This is not a criticism of the show or the people who watch it. Uh, it, it it's not intended that way, I swear. Uh, but CSI and Gurney shows, by their nature, you know, to a certain extent, you're sort of showing tens of millions of people every week that the world is a dark, violent, and sometimes unredeemable place. Or at least the year I worked there, we were just coming up with story after story that was were just unrelentingly grim. Uh, you know, cheerleaders eating each other's livers, and and are they based it, on real stories, real news stories? Not really, not as much as, as, as... I mean, sometimes, yeah, I mean, that would happen. That was the other depressing thing, is that, really, seriously, the, seri- the, 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 the year I worked there, some crazy guy in Tennessee started killing people in some novel way. I forget what it was. But after you've sat around the writer's room going, oh, let's see, we hung a guy, we stabbed a guy, we shot a guy, we burned a guy, we, you know, you, you've run out of stuff. And then some madman, psychopath, comes up with some new, you know, hey, he only eats the left cheekbone, or whatever it is. And the feeling in the room was like, hey, this is great! You know, something new! And I'm sitting there kind of going, yeah, but they're eating cheekbones. And it was just kind of not what I wanted to do with my life. And so what did you decide to do then? I'm not sure whether I was fired or I quit. There was just a point where it was very clear that I shouldn't be there. Okay. And I'm not kidding you when I tell you, it was just self-evident to everyone. So I can't tell you if I was fired or quit. I just didn't work there anymore. And then after that, what did I do? I, I bought a really cheap around-the-world ticket. You can, you can buy tickets in Britain for less than $2,000 to go around the world for a year. There's incredible travel deals Still? out there. Yeah. What year was that that you did that? That was 2003, 2004. Oh, my period. gosh. And yeah. it was $2,000? Yeah, you can still f- find stuff like that. You go. could have written Eat, Pray, Love. Well, I could have. I would have needed to be a, you know, a divorced woman looking for love who likes to eat. And I've got two of those. And yoga. And yoga, yeah, which isn't even Balinese, but that's not. Anyway, so, um, yeah. But tell us how you really feel about that book. <laughs> Do you know, honestly, I couldn't finish it. I couldn't finish it. I, 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 I wanted to like it, I, and, and nothing against the, the she seems very sincere and, and everything, but, but there is a great tradition in American travel literature, uh, particularly in the developing world, and I, had to, I stopped reading when I got to India, where the developing world is not, a thing of its own. It, it doesn't exist porn. on its own. Yeah, where it is a backdrop for the emotional growth of the first world character and nothing more. And we see this in 
in pop travel literature sometimes. We see it certainly in the movies all the time. Uh, just to let our audience know, so you became a travel writer. I mean, you've basically had these nine lives where you're like, ah, I don't, this isn't great for me. I think mm. I'll, I'm going to write from one of the most popular shows on television. Nah, not going to do that anymore. Now mm. I'm going to become a travel writer, mm-hmm. which is such a coveted position. Yeah, I, I kind of lucked into it. Um, again, it was a yes and situation. Um, I met uh, an editor named Jeff, Jeff Coyen, a wonderful guy uh, who was working at Forbes. And they had this, uh, they needed somebody who would be, you know, who, who was um, free of, uh, of commitments enough. Um, and Which plays to your strengths. Like you just said, like, I don't want to yeah. be in a committed relationship. I don't want to I didn't say that. I, I didn't say that. I just said I was single. I didn't say that. <laughs> I don't want to be, you know, in a, a room that requires collaboration and there's a ton of politics and mm-hmm. office politics and mm-hmm. that came up at the beginning of your life, mm-hmm. adult working life. Mm-hmm. And By the way, if there's the if there showrunners listening, I want you to know I've grown up. <laughs> Do you feel that way? Oh, yeah, yeah, honestly. Um, it, that was, yeah. I mean, you, you had to learn from your mistakes or they were, they were pointless. Okay, um, I didn't know if it was, hey, I've decided I'm not really good in group dynamics. I'm not going to be doing this anymore. I certainly wasn't. I've gotten better. Okay. Um, yeah, some of that, you know. What I, helped I, you get better at group dynamics? Um, I think the passage of time. I think the the uh, gradual accretion of, you know, what a lot of it was was the book that I was just working on. Um, I had to spend an enormous amount of time in large groups, often with people whose language I didn't speak. Right, but and, that's different than working on a television mm-hmm. show with people who are from the same background, sure. people who um, are demanding things of you constantly. Right. Some of those things may not sure. be relevant to the actual project. Right, but what was missing before, um, and I think I'm getting, is some humility. Um, I hope. I, I, I've, I have been taught by life enough that I am often full of crap and I should shut up and just listen more. I see. And I'm getting better at that. So you felt like you were the smartest person in the room. This gets confirmed by being on Jeopardy all the time. Mm, there's more truth in that than I'm comfortable admitting. Okay. Yeah. So getting this travel writer job, which is a dream job for anyone with a pulse, mm-hmm. where you are asked to go around the world and stay in the fanciest hotels possible, everything's paid for, mm-hmm. and you um, so artfully write about going to the United Arab Emirates mm-hmm. and being in Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi, yeah. And I couldn't get over the descriptions of the chocolate bars <laughs> made of gold. Yeah. People eating um, cat poop. Oh, well, yeah, those are two different things, and they're not actually eating the cat poop. They're making it into coffee. Okay. Um, I mean, I come on. <laughs> come on. We, you know, we're not, we're, we, don't, we, we don't work at Woolworths. But come on. You know, we don't eat the cat poop. We make coffee. What do you think we are? Um, there's a kind of coffee, uh, which I first learned about writing at CSI, actually, so it all comes back, uh, called coffee luwak. Um, a luwak is a civet. Um, it's a little cat-like animal that lives in uh, uh, Sumatra, some other places. A copy just is a word for coffee. And uh, Luwak coffee, if you believe this, and it turns out I think it's true, the, the Luwak um, wanders around the forest floor, you know, climbs up on the bushes, and it eats the berries of the coffee. And then something in the Luwak's uh, digestive system uh, somehow removes the, 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 the compounds uh, that are responsible for the harsher flavors in coffee. And, but doesn't digest the coffee any further than that. And so what comes out the other end of the Luwak is actually the world's finest coffee. That Who means, deemed it the world's finest coffee? You know, I wonder about that. Sumatrans, I mean, how many other things did they pick up off the forest floor and try to boil and make into coffee before they came across Luwak poop? I mean, how did they, how? What happened here? What's the, pro- I don't want to know how many other things they tried. Who knew that, like, Sumatra yeah. was the place for publicists yeah. born? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> it's not poop, it's gourmet coffee. Wow. You also talked about the 11 pounds 
of gold. Yeah. That they were selling these chocolate bars. Yeah. No, they, they, they you know, have you ever seen like gold flakes sprinkled on top of chocolate? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of thing. Just and little gold flakes. They're indigestible, so it goes right through you. So it's it is like hundreds of thousands of dollars of gold literally being thrown in the toilet by this hotel through their patrons, mind you. I mean, actually like through the bodies, but I mean, I mean, this is what, Forbes travel. That Forbes traveler, yeah. yeah. My job is to go to the fanciest hotels in the world, which they've chosen for me. I don't have to pick the hotels or be knowledgeable, and simply verify that they're nice. That was my job. I wrote these little 400-word pieces, many of which still exist online. You can Google and find them. It was wonderful at first, and then after a couple of weeks, got incredibly boring, because honest to God, how many? And and is it I lonely. A little, um, but I'd traveled around the world a couple times before by myself, so it wasn't. You know, I'm, I'm used to that. Um, and enjoy it. Yeah, mostly. I mean, there's it's a, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, you have you don't when there's a beautiful sunset, you don't have someone to go with, but you also don't have any logistical difficulties. And and if you've ever traveled with somebody and you're in the middle of an argument, that's just hell. Honestly, when I don't know what else to do with myself, when I've been at at, at uh, at kind of loose ends. I bought cheap plane tickets and just I'll go think about it on the other side of the world. And in the process, I'll learn something or I'll see something or I'll get inspired. It's the best way to learn. I've had three books, The Prisoner of Trebekistan and Who Hates Whom. Mm-hmm. Um, but your third book talks about going to being a travel writer, seeing all of this indulgence and wealth, mm-hmm. being so disgusted by it mm-hmm. and wanting to make a difference mm-hmm. from it. Yeah, I mean, for clarity's sake, I don't have a problem with wealth. It's wealth without purpose. It's wealth just accumulated for its own sake, um, where it's just kind of like gaudy, showy, you know. You talked about a guy who had uh, a Mercedes for each day of the week. Uh, there's a guy named the Rainbow Sheikh, uh, Hamad something. Um, and again, this is worth Googling. It's worth seeing on Google Maps. He's actually carved his name into an island. Um, two miles. Two miles high. Yeah, so you can see it from space, and it's upside down. So he's awesome. He's totally awesome. Anyway, so there's all this money just being tossed around, and the people who are building these temples, these these these, you know, modern pyramids, the the these billion dollar hotels, they're indentured servants. They're 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 just in the most brutal conditions, and they'll never see the insides of the building they're building. These guys from South Asia, from Southeast Asia, from from East Africa, who have, you know, they're living. And women. Um, that's all men. I mean, there's, there, there may be some women, to my knowledge. You let me, talked let me a just little say. bit about the human trafficking with women, yeah, but they yeah. weren't building. Yeah, that's different. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's women who've been brought in for prostitution, which okay. is, you know... Which is obviously really fun. Worse. It's yeah. just... That's ungodly, too. That's a whole other subject. And I would argue worse, but I think... Yeah, that, I agree. I also don't like to... Um, they're all awful, but that just yeah. seems like even more disgusting. Yeah, yeah. that's that's uh, and it's it's pervasive and completely illegal in the Emirates, by the way. Prostitution is illegal and openly practiced. Um, it's it's amazing. You can walk to, through the tourist areas of, at night, and I'm blonde-haired and blue-eyed and walking by myself, and it was it was like you know how like when you walk into an amusement park and people want to take your picture and hand you a coupon and do a thing, and you can't you like have to run this gauntlet of people. Um, who are are trying to force something into your hand? It's just like that, but it's not your hand. It's like every day for me. I walk down the street, and people are offering me jobs and flowers, and it's like I just can't take all mm-hmm. the attention. I mm-hmm. totally understand. Yeah. No, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I, I can picture it. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was heartrending. And then the guys who are doing the the labor in the buildings, I guess I sparked to them a little bit because my dad um, and he did nothing quite comparable, but he he worked for General Motors for 37 years. Uh, in a warehouse, and he was a little bitty man. He he was never more than a buck forty in his life, 
and his job was to move stuff around. And I, I joke in the book that he was probably part ant. I mean, he, the guy had like no muscle tissue. He was just skin and bones and eyeballs. And you and, talk about uh, him sitting on your front porch and you know supporting you and your sister and um, and how hard he worked and mm-hmm. and just how he had to recover every night was spent yeah. just recovering from that day and facing the next day so that you could get yeah. out. Yeah, I mean, he would just sit there, and I didn't appreciate it when I was a kid. I I wanted him to play catch with me. You know, I was a child. I didn't know. Um, oh, sorry. I was, I was, I was, I spilled my water earlier just so the audience at home. I, I'm, I'm now, um, although it's very hot in this little tiny booth, so I'm cooling off beautifully good, as it good evaporates. For you to be able to relate yeah. to women in their 50s and 60s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is how they feel every day. Well, I, you know, it's good is this to see. back the United Arab Emirates by any chance? Oh my God, it's not even close. I mean, the Emirates is. Uh, I mean, when it's it's humid, it's right on the Persian Gulf, and it's so much more humid than I had any idea because you're adjacent to the desert. But I mean, it, the the heat index on a cool day is 115 or 120. I mean, it's brutal. And these guys are working 10-hour days, you know, 12-hour days, and then going off to labor camps. They're bussed back out to that are, with no air conditioning. Um, you know, tend to a head in a room, and they're I getting. I feel so lazy and so irritated by myself and others will be like, oh, I worked so hard on that mm. and not understanding what hard work huh. really, really, truly is when you're physically mm. bleeding yeah. from it. The, you know, they, they, some of them actually drop dead. I mean, they're, they're literally worked to death. I mean, the, one of the saddest things that I've ever encountered is, is uh, at the end, look this up online to see if I'm making this up. At the, there's, there's video footage of it that a documentary filmmaker made. Uh, the Kathmandu Airport there are caskets coming back almost every day from guys who've died while they were working, uh, for usually from heat stroke, uh, you know, heat, heat exhaustion. So people are literally being worked to death. And how am I supposed to walk back into these billion-dollar hotels and, and, and cash? I mean, I'm getting paid to do this. I'm getting paid to sleep in the how cushy much beds. How you getting paid to do this? Not tons, but I, I racked up. not tons? I made about 20 grand for, um, I, that I cleared by the time I'd finished my, my, my writing for Forbes. That was sort of, you know, after for expenses how long and everything. Did that take? Um, it was a few months. I was out for twenty thousand dollars for a couple months of traveling. Yeah, yeah, it was not a bad job. Is Forbes looking for any writers? <laughs> Unfortunately, Forbes Traveler uh, folded and was was kind of merged into the mainstream site. Do you think that it folded by any reason because it's offering so much money for? Uh, I think it's just like everybody's trying to figure out how the internet works all at once, you know. Okay. And and I think Forbes, you know, went well that ain't working and moved on. Did you stop doing travel writing because when you saw the enormous disparity between the wealthy and the poor, you decided, I can't be a part of the system in that way? Well, I couldn't. I certainly couldn't take the money for sleeping in the hotels that these guys had built and not try to do something for them. I mean, and so then I went through a whole period of trying to figure out, okay, well, what charity do I give to? What Do, do I put this money in the Red Cross or what do I... You know, really the, difficult to know. The International to know. Bank of Bob... Is the name of the book, yeah. You talk about going through this crisis of consciousness in a way that's very subtle and thoughtful, and it actually was quite reminiscent to me of when Obama spoke about living in a White House, living in the White House, that was built by slaves. Mm. And for you, your personal struggle was being in a hotel Mm -hmm. that was built by slave labor, Mm -hmm. and you're having it both in front of you. Now, we all have that every single day of Mm -hmm. our lives, whether you are middle class, working class. I live barely above the poverty line. However, I'm keenly aware that I am not Mm -hmm. poor. I am broke. Mm -hmm. And you talk about your personal journey of having to wrestle with this, and not that you should feel guilt Mm -hmm. for having done well, because you should Mm -hmm. not, as you well know, but how to 
tackle the income disparity? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What can I do? What can I as a person do? I mean, you know, I have some wealth. It, it needs a purpose or I don't have one. Well, anyway, right about that time, the Nobel Peace uh, Prize Committee had given the Nobel uh, Peace Prize to Muhammad Yunus and the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh, and microfinance was uh, coming into vogue. And, you know, it, those guys wouldn't have gotten on the planes, wouldn't have had to go to get their jobs in the Middle East and, and suffer so if the economy was better in their, their small village, if, if they could make a good living there, if education existed, if, if you know... There would be a brain drain from certain societies. Mm-hmm. However, I mean, there, there, there's two parts of globalization. I mean, on, on one hand, you do need to travel to another country and be exposed to resources that they have, particularly mm-hmm. if you're talented in a set mm-hmm. area that your own country doesn't have. Mm-hmm. Then there's the other part where there's a necessity of sort of a Maslow hierarchy of needs that people are forced to leave their countries due to mm-hmm. economic reasons. Yeah, yeah. And they shouldn't, I mean, it w- I would love for Ganesh to not have to leave his, leave his family. I'd like him to be able to stay in Nepal if he wants to, make a living in Nepal if he wants to, and travel if he wants to for leisure and learn, great, but it'd be really neat if the economy was strong enough where he was. So how do you do that? And, you know, one of the solutions, that, and it's not the only one, but it's one that works in some places, is, is microfinance. And where so you what is microfinance building... exactly for the f- a couple mm-hmm. people who don't know what it is? Microfinance is, is the, the making financial tools available to the unbanked. All of them. Uh, microfinance is the umbrella term for credit, savings, insurance, etc. Microcredit is the specific of, uh, of credit, of loans. And Kiva, which is this organization you discovered, mm-hmm. and they do micro loans. 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 And so you ended up doing 5,000 micro mm-hmm. loans. You gave over tens of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. How did you um, choose? who you gave to when you're seeing all these people online mm-hmm. and all of them are worthy, mm-hmm. how do you choose who you give to? It's a weird feeling. It was it was reassuring to see that the loans were filling whether I put money into it or not. That there's there's like a million people now who've gone to Kiva and made at least one loan. They're, they're, it's, it's either just under or just over a million right now. And what's now. the minimum you can give as a loan? Uh, $25. And then are you expecting that money back? Yeah. Yeah, you get repaid more than 99% of the time. So um, you made money on this? No, no, no. You just get repaid. You get your money back. You're not making interest. But you do get repaid, so that's why I've been able to make thousands of loans. That original twenty thousand uh, dollars, you know, that only equates to I don't know this X hundred number of loans. Somebody can do math out there. But uh, over time, once it gets repaid, and then I lend it back out, and it gets repaid, and I lend it back out over and over, it cycles through. I've lent and relent the same money over and over seven or eight times now. I mean, see, that's fascinating because you did obviously do very well in earning money for, for writing for um, CSI and Bones mm-hmm. and winning Jeopardy, but you didn't do, you weren't a millionaire. No, no, no. So here's someone who sounds like actually you're, I'm going to say you're probably upwardly middle class because you don't have any dependents. Yeah. But at the same time, you sort of decided this is how much money I can give. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to keep giving that same amount over mm-hmm. and over. Mm-hmm. It's like charity you can reuse that way, which is really kind of cool. And and I started. And then you went and followed your money. I mean, I thought what was mm-hmm. interesting is you donated to Kiva. You see the disparity in in uh, wealth and poverty, which we all do, whether it's at adolescence or college or somewhere along the line. You start to realize that life is not fair. Mm-hmm. You chose to do something about it that was going to make you both feel better, but actually mm-hmm. also have tangible results. Mm-hmm. And then you went to check up. And mm-hmm. see how how your loans were doing, mm-hmm. and what was the result of that? It was most amazing ride of my life. I, I it was fantastic and heartbreaking um, all at the same time. Um, I met clients, uh, many of whom were the actual recipients that I whose loans I'd helped finance uh, in more than a dozen countries all over the world. I went to, to Peru and Bosnia, Kenya, Rwanda, Tanzania, Lebanon. Uh, I don't know. I can give you this long list of countries. 
and uh, uh, it was two more trips around the world. And it was uh, to actually sit and meet these people in places where I wasn't sure I'd be welcomed. I didn't know how I'd go over, you know. And because you're a white American male, some of that, you know, there's there's a class thing, there's an ethnic thing, there's a language thing, you know, there's a million cosmetic divides between me and uh, let's say, uh, you know, sitting down with somebody in the middle of Rwanda or sitting down in Cambodia or wherever, Lebanon, you know, I fly into Beirut, I get off the plane, hello Beirut, you know, and I don't know anybody there. I'm just, I just showed up in Beirut. Let's see how this goes. And uh, I got to know the people at the local lending institution and went on a ride along and got to meet a client and then another client, another client. And what you, what you see very quickly is that everybody, faith and language, all that stuff aside, uh, they're just trying to make a better life for their kids and put food on the table exactly the same way my dad did. There ain't no difference at all. Now, for you, you've been able to live your dreams, and at the same time, what I think is so beautiful is that you're encouraging other people to live theirs, mm-hmm. and you've gone to the next step, which is fostering those dreams. Mm-hmm. That's the best part is, I mean, you know, I never tell the clients. I mean, if they asked, I would say so, but I, I, I would really kind of prefer not to tell the clients that I was involved in their loan or because it's not about me. And also, that'd be gross. There'd be like this really icky indebtedness vibe, you know. It'd be like showing up and going, "Hey, how you liking that refrigerator?" That's me. Well, um, anonymous giving. At least I'm Jewish, and, mm-hmm. and anonymous giving is one of the highest levels of giving. Tzedakah. To Maimonides. Yeah. 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 Um, and it, and I think it's true. I think uh, uh, I think that's huge. Um, so without telling them, that I would show up and I would say, you know, I am an American. I'm 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 a writer, and I'm in, I'm interested in your life and, and and this village or this town. And they'd look at me a little funny, and then they'd realize I, I meant it. And then they'd be like, they'd feel, wow, neat. And, you know, let's get some tea and play soccer, and we'd hang out. And it was the same thing over and over and over again everywhere I went. And to sit on somebody's porch and see their children who are, because of the business that has, you know, now exists. This happened in Rwanda. It was really moving. Um, there was a, a woman whose children, you know, 18 months earlier had been sleeping they lived in a shack with no power. They were sleeping on a mat on the floor. And now, thanks to this tiny business they she'd been able to finance, they have a bed. They have a firm roof over their heads. They have food. They have, you know, they're going to have money for, 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 for school and for everything that they need. And I'm not saying it's all going to work out, but it's a fundamental change in their lives. And that I, from all the way over in Los Angeles, sitting at a MacBook Pro typing, you know, linked to a PayPal account, I'm able to, to somehow help these kids in a way that cost me pennies because it, it got repaid and then I can put it somewhere else. Well, I want to recommend that people get your book. Yes, invest inter- in my book. The International Bank of Bob and more importantly, invest in Kiva. Mm-hmm. And wanted to ask what you are up to. What is the next dream that Bob Harris is hoping to... I have no idea. I'll wait for the next thing to come up for me to say yes and to. Um, and right now I'm waiting. Thank you so much for being on Employee of the Month. It was a pleasure to have you on and a real privilege. It's, it's it's just incredible to meet someone who's like been able to live their dreams and then also uh, genuinely tried to help others do the same. Well, well, thanks. Thanks for having me. This was a real joy. Okay. So did you feel jazzed by Bob Harris? I did. Thank you so much for listening to employee of the month show. If you did feel jazzed by Bob Harris, if you didn't feel jazzed by Bob Harris, go to the website, employeeofthemonthshow.com and let me know how you felt. I'm so thrilled. I'm going back to New York soon to do two more live tapings, uh, one in July and one in September. And you should definitely keep checking on the website. You can subscribe to the RSS feed, subscribe to iTunes, just subscribe. In life, if you're subscribing, that's a step in the right direction. Uh, Hope you're doing great. 
Thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you to Joel Arnold for editing this. And from Employee of my Thank you. All I really just wanted to say was thank you.